Okay. It's not so much for you guys. It's for the recording. So let's, we're going to start over. I'm going to say that again. You guys are going to just act really like, oh, I've never heard this before. It's the first time I've ever heard it. No. Um, like I said, what we're going to do is we're going to kind of take some examples and some things from that article that I came across and, and share about that, but also tie it into our own lives, our own Christian lives. And so I'm really excited about this because, like I said, I went from really not knowing where the Lord was going to lead to coming across this article and just some studying and some reading of some things. And I've, I never had heard this story before. I never heard about this event that took place in Christian history and church history. And so I want to share this with you guys. But before we get to the article, before we get to excerpts from that article, I want to go to Matthew chapter 9. So Matthew chapter 9 is where we're going to start. We're going to read a very familiar passage in verse 36. So Matthew 9 and verse 36. And so Matthew 9 verse 36. And I encourage you to read the whole chapter, obviously, to get the context. But we're going to start in verse 36, kind of the application of what's being talked about here. But when he saw the multitudes, he being Jesus, when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them. Because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep, having no shepherd. Then saith he unto his disciples, the harvest truly is, truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. Now I know this is a familiar passage. If, if you spent any time around church, especially good old independent Baptist churches like ours, you've been maybe in missions conferences or you've had missionaries come and speak or you've heard missionaries share their stories. Often this will be a passage that a missionary will share. And the reason they do this is because of a couple of things. One, they really believe in the power of prayer. But two, they, they see the need. These missionaries that are out on foreign fields, a lot of them over the years, I've talked to older missionaries that are retiring. We've actually had in the last couple of years, two of our missionary families retire from ministry. Now, one of them is pretty much retired. One is actually living on the campus of the off-grid tech center with Ethnos 360 Tribal Missions and still actually actively doing ministry. Um, in the last letter we got from Tim and Chris C., they kind of expressed that you know, people have asked them, are you really retired? Because every time we see you or hear about you or read your letters, you're still doing everything you did before. Well, they're not really doing everything they did before, but they're still very active. And so they see as a missionary, when they get to an age of retirement, and by the way, I've been told a lot, a lot of times, pastors and missionaries don't really retire, right? They just maybe aren't actively doing it every single day. But so many pastors that retire, they really become pastor emeritus of a church, and they still do a lot of ministry. They just don't do it for as much pay or as often, okay? Um, which is always really encouraging to me as a young pastor to hear that, because that just really excites me for the glory of God. But um, we've laughed about it. We said, well, when I retire, oh, wait, I probably, probably never will retire, really. Um, at which point someone goes, well, you know, we never retire from ministry, brother, you know. And I just, you know, you want to just, okay, work at GM for the rest of your life. And you tell me how you feel about that, okay? But I get what they mean. But as they see these holes opening in the mission field, guess what? They're leaving mission fields where maybe the church isn't quite ready yet. Maybe there's still a pretty immature church there that needs someone to come alongside. And they're not seeing younger people coming in in every case. Now, I will say this. We just heard from Tim and Christy recently, and they talked about, and even it was, um, oh, I just lost his name. The gentleman that works with, Ethnos 360, he does like recruiting, basically. Just lost his name. 
Dan Stokes, that's it. Um, and he's talked about some of the graduates from the Bible Institute and those that are transitioning into missions. And there are younger people that are moving into missions. It's not like there's nobody going. But we, we see seasons of this where there's this big season, this big push of missionaries going out. And then maybe there's a few seasons or a few years of just kind of a lull. And I've always said, I really pray that our church will be a mission-sending church, not just somebody that supports missions, but sends out missionaries. Uh, we talk about Tim and Chris C., uh, Ron and Debbie Abram, uh, individuals that we've seen do ministry for 40-plus years. They came out of or connected to when they're sending to North Goodland. Uh, Tim and Chris C., Tim used to be in the youth ministry here when he was much younger, obviously, and back in the 60s. He was sent out from North Goodland. Think about the generational impact that's made. Think about the people that attended North Goodland in the 60s that just supported what God was doing there by praying over him. And now their daughter is involved in ministry and missions work. The people they've reached through their tech center and through the jungles of uh, people that live in jungles that have these resources now available to them because they provided the solar ability for them to be able to translate the Bible into that language. And now tribes of people, literally countless numbers of people have heard the, the gospel in their own language and received Christ. Why? Because a church in the 60s in Emily City, out in the cornfield, prayed over this young man and said, yeah, you need to go if God's calling you to go and supported him. And there's nothing saying God can't still do that. Because God does that. And so I want to look at this verse a little bit. And I want to ask a simple question. Now, I don't want you to answer out loud. This is just between you and God. The first question, there's two. But the first one I want to ask is, again, between you and the Lord, do we really believe the answer to God sending missionaries into the field is prayer? So think individual, think local church, think big church. Do we as Christians really believe that what Jesus said is the solution. What is the solution for the need for laborers? Not to convince them, to debate with them, to talk them into it. What's the, what's the solution? To pray. And who do we pray to? The Lord of the harvest. The one that's over it all. To say, Lord, you work in the hearts of these people. That you would send forth laborers out into the field. So first of all, the first question I want you to really ask yourself right now between you and the Lord. Do you really believe that the solution... Or the answer to God sending missionaries into the field is prayer. I got to be honest, and I would say I believe I do think that's the answer because Jesus said that's the answer. If you're ever unsure, if Jesus said it, it's the answer, okay? Like if you're like, ah, I don't really know. Well, Jesus said this, that's the answer. So if Jesus says that's the solution, then that's the answer, and we need to believe that. But the second question really reveals what we actually believe the answer is. Because I can say I believe that. I believe that that's the solution. But the second question is this. Do we pray like that's the answer? Do we pray like that's true? Do we pray consistently, continually, passionately, fervently for God to send forth laborers into the harvest that people would come to know Christ? Do we pray that? Do we pray it like we really believe it's the solution? So many churches do conferences and things like this and missionary conferences, and we've done them in the past. We'll do them again, and I, I love it. I love putting missions before the church. I, we tried to do one a couple years ago. Uh, some health issues came up with the individuals that were going to lead it. Then we tried again, and then 2020 happened, and that wasn't going to work for people traveling. I mean, missionaries can't come here if 2020 is going on. They're like, hey, you can't even get on a plane right now. So we want to do that again. There's nothing wrong with those things. 
But, but talking someone into it, convincing someone of it, sharing the pros and cons of why you should be a missionary, why you should go overseas, that's not going to solve the problem. It's got to be God working in the hearts of the individual Christian. See, we're all not called to global missions. Everyone in this room is not called to global missions. Some of you, though, are called to local missions. What do I mean by that? Going to your neighbor, going to your school, going to your community, going to your family. But some of us are called, I truly believe, impressed by God to go to a foreign people group and share the gospel. And how are we going to know the difference? How are we going to know if we're really called? Well, if we begin praying for God to send forth laborers and we're really open to that and you're supposed to be going, he'll let you know. He'll let you know really fast. When I was in Bible college and every time missions emphasis week came around, which was really just a week where we sat in like multiple chapel services and missionaries would just share all these crazy stories and just exciting things that God was doing all over the world. Every time I'm like, okay, Lord, am I supposed to be a missionary instead of a pastor or a youth pastor or a church planner here in the States? Am I supposed to go overseas somewhere? And I remember praying in my dorm room, just like, well, not constantly, I guess, because that's probably, I was still playing video games and doing stuff like that. But I remember praying a lot around that time and just saying, Lord, if it's supposed to be, I'm supposed to go, I need to go. And for me, for me, and being on the mission field now a couple different times, I have never believed that God was calling me to to overseas missions. I just, I, I pray that I'm understanding his will for my life in this moment, but I do believe that God has impressed on my heart a need for missions for the local church. That as a pastor, it's my job to remind us there's a world out there that needs Jesus. And so when you read this text, do we really believe this is true? That we need to pray. And I know in context, he's speaking directly to the disciples. He's talking right to them. But I believe he's speaking to us as well through his word. And so to kind of unpack that a little bit, I want to share a story with you. And I'm going to read some fairly sort of long, few sentences, excerpts from an article. The article is called The Hundred Year Prayer Meeting. If I remember right, Hundred Year Prayer Meeting. And when I saw the article title, I was like, okay, this is an exaggerated title. It's being figurative. Not so much. Not so much. This is from a website called Desiring God. And it looks like it was published just here at the beginning of June. And so I'm going to read some excerpts from the article itself. Obviously, you can go and read the whole thing for yourself. But I had never heard this story before. And when I realized I'd never heard the story before, I felt kind of like, man, how did I miss this? How did I miss this? And so I want to just jump right in because this blew me away. In the spring of 1727, during a season of internal turmoil within the community, now I'm going to unpack what community, but basically this is, again, an excerpt halfway through the article. Uh, that's this division or this internal tum- turmoil in this community was dissension and bickering among these believers. So in the spring of 1727, there's this community of believers and there's some bickering and dissension among them. Some of these believers, these are the uh, Moravians. The Moravians here are Protestant refugees that fled from Catholic-controlled states. So this is following a long period of actual battles, wars, fightings between the Catholic-controlled states in Europe and the Protestant-controlled states. Really, they were fighting. The Lutherans and the Catholics were fighting over the, what was the Holy Roman Empire. They were trying to have control over this. And in the meanwhile, all of the church is getting caught up in this. And after this war kind of ended, I believe they, it was a 30-year war, after this war ended, you had all of these people that were dislocated from their homes. 
Because what basically started happening is if you were in a region or an area where your prince, your leader, your ruler, your noble was Protestant, your area was Protestant. If you were in a region where your noble was Catholic, you're, it's Catholic. And there's no in-between. And I know to us this sounds really funny because we live in a country where you can be Catholic, Lutheran, Methodist, atheist. Like you can be whatever. And it's not like they're going to kick you out of the country because you're not one of these groups. But following the Reformation, following this period of time, you got to understand there was so much turmoil in Europe. And to say I'm Lutheran in certain places could cost you your life. I remember when we were studying some of the church history uh, in our epic study on Wednesday nights, they were talking about some of the early first Baptists were actually persecuted because they were Baptist. They would have to sing as quiet as possible so nobody would know they were singing and worshiping. Now, that seems really weird to us because we're like, you're just Baptist. And by the way, I do think it's funny the noise in the Baptist church was the problem. I thought in singing at that time, that was, okay. So, but you think about that. Like these poor, I mean, just for being Baptist and not Catholic. And I, I want to make sure we're honest here to history. This wasn't just those mean Catholics, the Protestants. Some of these Protestants were not behaving in Christ-like ways. So following this, there's this area that kind of becomes a, a safety net for these refugees, these Moverian refugees. And so they fled to this area. But as they're here in this region, uh, in this town that we're going to talk about in a little bit here, uh, there was some turmoil in this community of believers. So this goes to show you they can believe the right things, but it's hard to live it all the time, right? This is why when you go into church, church can be hard. This is why church is split, right? Because there's division over something. Usually, it's not always, but usually it's pretty silly, right? And somebody doesn't like somebody and this person likes that and whatever and blah, blah, blah. And boom, they just split and start a whole new church. It's amazing. But I've always said, and this is a side note, I've always wondered what it would be like if God didn't allow us to do that. Like, what if God made it where you had only one church? Now, I know what you're thinking. Like, you know, this isn't heresy. I'm not, I'm not encouraging all uniting under one banner. I'm just saying. I, there's a lot of doctrines of denominations I disagree with, and I think the Bible does too. I'm just saying, what if God said, nope, it's one church, only one church. Now, it is one church in Christ. But I mean, gathering together. You all had to gather in one location for your city. So in Emily City, there's no Baptist and Lutheran and Methodist and assemblies and whatever. It's just the church of Emily City. And we all had to gather in one building. Can you imagine how much potential for discord there could be? Difference of opinion, arguments, right? And so here we see this happening. Even in a group of Protestants who are fleeing away from persecution, they're seeing it in their own community. So I want to focus in on what do they do to solve this problem? What do they do to stop this bickering and all of this. They began praying for fresh revival in their midst. 1727, they're beginning to pray for fresh revival in their midst. Again, remember following the Reformation in Europe, there was fighting among these groups. Many were forced to leave their homes. These Moverian Protestants were just that. They were forced to leave their home. Uh, if you were a Protestant in a Catholic state, again, it would cause a lot of distress for you or if you were a Catholic in a Protestant state. So this is the spring of 1727. They begin praying, okay? The small community of Moverian believers begin praying. By the late summer, almost 50 Moverians had committed to pray, listen now, for one hour a day, one after the other, for 24 consecutive hours, seven days a week. 
So this community, 50 of them in this community said, here's what we're going to do. We want to see God move in our community. We want to see you know, unity in Christ and all these things and just God bring revival and send revival and this fresh faith to us. So we're going to commit to pray one hour a day, one after the other, for 24 consecutive hours, seven days a week. Spiritual awakening soon came to the Movarians, causing their little group to grow and drawing more refugees from all over Europe. People are beginning to flock to this community of believers. As is so often the case, the article goes on to say, in church history, the onset of revival only deepened the Movarians' commitment to the power of prayer. So as this is happening, after just a couple of months, they're realizing God's moving. So guess what we're going to do? We're not going to go, we're done. Like, we're good. I've always said I feel like our church way back. I'm not knocking it. It's just it is what it is. We begin praying for God to give us the resources to add on to our existing building over on uh, Brown City Road, Clear Lake Road, where it meets. And we couldn't do it. We raised all this money. It was crazy. Every Sunday, people were just flooding the altars, praying for God to move. Money was just pouring in. This little country church in the middle of a cornfield, right? I think there was maybe 200 people attending it. And we just raised all this money so fast. And then we realized they wouldn't allow us to build because we wouldn't have enough land. So we talked to the farmer on this side. Nope, I'm not selling you an acre. I mean, nothing. This guy, nope, I'm not selling you nothing. Nope, I'm not selling you nothing. And we were just stuck. We couldn't do anything. So then the previous pastor, Tom Blount, saw this property. And with the money we raised, paid cash for the property this building sits on, 22 acres. And so now people have seen, look what God is doing. How amazing is our God? And then we began to build and all of this. But you know what happened about six months after we got in the building? The people at the altar kind of faded. And I'm not saying you got to go forward to, for it to count. I'm just saying, all of a sudden, it was almost like we had this mindset like, this is, this is it. Look what God did. And yes, God did this. Uh, first Sunday in the building, there was 400 and some people here. 200 the week before, 400 and some the next week. Because that's what God can do. If, if it's God's will. I'm not saying that big churches are blessed by God and little churches aren't. I'm just saying, God, for whatever reason, according to his will and purpose, blessed us that way. And I do believe there's a direct connection between the prayers of God's people to ask God and say, God, we believe. And so this begins to happen. But you know what people did? They thought, this is all there is. And all of a sudden, the prayer ceased. People weren't asking God to do what God can do. And so here, these people, they didn't say, well, we're done. We've achieved it. They said, no, we're going to keep pushing forward. As amazing as it seems today, the Movarians kept up their round-the-clock prayer ministry for over a century. A hundred years. This community said, we're committed to this. An hour a day, every day, seven days a week, every year, for a hundred years. As this happens and continues to happen, it makes me think, can you imagine being a part of something like that? Instantly, when I read this article, I thought, that's got to be figurative. That's got to be, it's not literal. Who could do that? Now, I, again, I, I don't know if I believe God's calling all of us to do this, right? I don't think that's the point of the article. I believe the point I want to bring forward is when we believe God can do what God can do and we ask him for it, he's going to answer in his will. He's going to do what he wants to do when he wants to do it. We're not convincing or talking God into anything. But I believe when we begin to pray this way, number one, we become more aware of what he's already doing. 
It's not like now he's moving. It's just, oh, I never saw it before because I was focused on self or focused on whatever or distracted or in fear. Now in prayer, you know what's amazing when we spend consistent time in prayer? We are, we talked about last week, being filled with the Spirit. Again, we're not getting more of the Spirit. We're maturing in the Spirit. Meaning we're growing closer to Christ and we're growing closer to Christ's likeness. So we're asking him to conform us to his will. And now we're going to see, man, look what God has been doing all along. And then we say, God, would you continue to move? God, would you grow the church? And I'm going to talk about in a minute here how he connects those two things. And you have a big part in that. In fact, as we think about this 100-year prayer meeting, the article goes on to say, in fact, this has become known as the 100-year prayer meeting. While no other known group of Christians has replicated the Moravians' century-long prayer event, Countless churches and other ministries, often inspired by the example of the Moverians, have hosted 24-hour prayer meetings for revival, missions, or some other priority. We've heard of that. We've heard of 24-hour prayer gatherings or week-long prayer gatherings or even calling for a fast and people getting into that way. And it's all good. But man, for a hundred years to say an hour a day, every day, every year for a hundred years. One important fruit The article goes on, one important fruit of the prayer revival, and I love that it's called that, the prayer revival, was a missionary awakening among the Moravians. At the time, this is in, again, the 1700s, at the time, virtually no Protestants were involved in cross-cultural missions. The Moravians became the tip of the spear for evangelical global missions. This group emphasized, and reading another article, because I kind of got interested, and I was like, reading more stuff about this occurrence. This group emphasized the new birth, accountability one to another, Bible study, and prayer. Pretty pretty key things, but pretty important things. They really emphasized as well, along with that, this idea of accountability is Christ-like living. In a lot of the articles, you'll see it'll talk about piety. This idea of living daily what you believe. Uh, this was the Wesleyan cry, the John Wesley and Charles Wesley. It was the cry of having a way of living that represented Christ. If you really study it out, I mean, in a loose way, this is why the Methodists became known as the Methodist, the method of living. We live according to these decrees. We want to live in accordance with God's word and live in a way that reflects the Christ likeness that we claim. The method of how we live reflects our relationship with Christ. So you see how out of the Reformation, some of these things begin to take place. And here with this group, it was no different. They believed in these key things, and they prayed that these things would be evident in the community and in the church. Beginning in 1732, five years after the prayer commitment started, not 50 years, five years after, dozens of Moravian missionaries took the nearly unprecedented step of leaving Europe to spread the gospel to the other lands. By 1791, now again, remember, this started in 1727. By 1791, around 300 Morvarian missionaries had been sent out from uh, Hernhut in Saxony. This is the town they resided in when they started. That number was equivalent in size to the total number of Moverians when the round-the-clock prayer ministry first began in 1727. So five years after this started, remember there was 50 in the beginning. That wasn't the whole community, but 50 in the community committed to pray. After that started, in, by 1791, uh, the number of missionaries that had been sent out was around 300. 
So think about that. 50 in this community said, we're going to commit to pray for God to bring healing and revival and just a newness to our faith, to focus us on Christ. And out of that came this mission awakening where the whole community was 300. Now you see where this has gone out now, where that many is going out into the mission field. They became the answer to their own prayer. I had you guys in Matthew chapter 9. Look at Matthew chapter 10. Some of you may have realized this or you've studied this before. You're not unfamiliar with this. But I've always said when we pray and ask God to send forth laborers into his harvest, be very careful because if you are praying that and meaning that, he's going to send you. Chapter 10 and verse 1. And when he had called unto him his 12 disciples, the same disciples he just said to do what? Pray, right? Pray that the Lord of the harvest. And it goes down and talks about all these things and who they were. Um, And he talks about all that they're going to do. What are they going to do? They're going to go out and they're going to preach the gospel. He goes on to say, let me drop down here. Verse 16 of Matthew 10. Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of the wolves. Be therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. And he goes on to talk about all the things they're supposed to do and not do and all this. But here's the key. Hey, disciples, pray that I'll send forth laborers into my harvest. And I believe they begin to pray. Now, we knocked the disciples because a couple of them couldn't pray for an hour before they fell asleep, right? Remember the Garden of Gethsemane? Hey, you stay here and pray. I'm going to go pray. Going to die for the sins of the world. Going to sacrifice myself as the Lamb of God. Would you just pray for me? He comes back. You couldn't even pray for an hour. Now that right there convicts some of us where we think an hour, 10 minutes is about all I can do, right? I mean, some of us feel that way. We start drifting because we haven't disciplined ourselves in prayer. He goes away. He wakes them up. He goes away, encourages them and goes away, comes back, sleeping again. But here, I believe, this is why we got to be so careful how critical we are of these individuals. Oh, I can't believe they didn't pray for an hour. Well, apparently they prayed what Jesus asked them to pray because Jesus answers their prayer with them. And that's what we see here in this uh, situation that happened in church history. These Moverians began to pray and God answered the prayer by sending them into the mission field, even though there was not really a mission field as far as Protestants were concerned. They didn't understand that yet, what it really meant. A generation later, a shoe cobbler turned Baptist pastor named William Carey became known as the father of the modern missions movement in 1792. Carey published a a treatise titled An Inquiry into the Obligations of Christians to Use Means for the Conversion of the Heathens. That's a long title. An Inquiry into the Obligations of Christians to Use Means for the Conversion of the Heathens. The heathens would be anyone not Christian. Carey was keenly aware that he was actually standing on the shoulders of earlier missionaries In his inquiry, he highlighted a number of missionary pioneers whom he believed his fellow evangelicals should emulate, including the Morvarians. When Carey helped found the Baptist Missionary Society in 1793 and left later that year to serve as a missionary to India, he understood he was doing what hundreds of Morvarian missionaries had done before. So again, it's amazing to me the connection. We read Matthew 9 and we read Matthew 10 and we ask the question, do we really believe that the answer to the need for missionaries is prayer? And we say, yes, because Jesus said it. 
But then we have to ask, do I believe it enough to actually do it? It's easy to say, I believe this. It's a lot harder to show what you believe by your actions. When I read this article, I was blown away by the commitment of these believers to say, we're going to pray. And it started because 50 of them said, we believe there's something more that God could be doing in our community. We believe that this isn't all there is. The world wasn't great when they prayed this prayer. Everything wasn't perfect. There wasn't perfect peace. There was turmoil in their community. There was turmoil in the known world. I mean, imagine again, if they were even in a different state, a different area of Europe, they could be killed. This is not everything's great all the time, but they begin to pray, God, you can do something in this. When we look around our world today, I think we can agree. We see some things that we don't agree with. We don't like. It's pretty bad in our world today as far as the darkness. But we have a choice to make. Are we going to conform and say, you know what, fine, I'm just going to quit and hide in my church because obviously the darkness is one? Or are we going to say, no, God is still a God who saves and God is a God who desires me to pray that he would send forth laborers into the harvest. But again, we got to be careful because he most likely will send us. And so these Moverians begin to pray a simple prayer, committed to it, the Bible says pray without ceasing. It doesn't mean I'm 24-7 walking with my eyes closed and my hands folded. It means I have an attitude of prayer. These individuals took that very literally and said, yeah, we're going to commit to this thing. So my challenge to you tonight, simply, to me as well, is do we pray this way? And if we don't, are we willing to change and conform to what God's word asks us to do? Are we ready to pray, God, send forth laborers into your harvest? I'm not saying you got to do it an hour a day. I'm not saying you got to do it for the rest of your life. I'm just saying, will you commit to pray and saying, God, make me aware that this is a need, that I need to be praying for this. I need to be asking you to do this great work and then be willing to say, Lord, and if it's me, I'll go. I'll go. What did he say to Isaiah? I'm looking for one to send, one to put in the gap. Isaiah's response is so simple. Here, my Lord, send me. Was Isaiah perfect? What did he just get done telling God? I'm a man of unclean lips. I live in a land of unclean people. I'm not perfect. I don't have perfect faith. But because he was cleansed and given, in in a sense, new life, right? Because he was living in shame and guilt. And God says, okay, we can cleanse that. We can take care of that. And then when God said, who are we going to send? He said, I'll go. And so for me, it's not going overseas necessarily. It, maybe it's going to your neighbor. It's going to your coworker. It's going to your family member. But I believe it starts with prayer. And this is why when we hear about churches canceling Wednesday night services, because people just don't think prayer is enough if that's all they're doing. So many churches I know of, well, we don't do prayer meeting anymore. Why not? People don't, they don't show up. It's just not enough of a draw for them asking the God of all creation to work in ways that only he can, and we get to be a part of that answer and the solution to people coming to Christ, that's not enough of a draw. And this is not just a a, a city thing, a church thing, a Baptist thing. This is a global Christian thing. We need to be praying for God to work. And I, I, I think this stuff happens still today. Maybe not for 100 years, as it was said in the article, no known group has ever done this before or since. But you've heard stories, I've heard stories about missionaries over in other countries where they're hours, hours on their knees, just praying and seeking the Lord. And is it really 
a shock to us then that those are the regions we see God sending forth revival. And when I say revival, I'm not talking about emotional stuff. Emotion's great. It comes with truth, if it's truth. But revival, Jonathan Edwards, the revivalist preacher that we've mostly known, he wrote the hands, uh, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. When he was asked about true revival versus false revival, how do you know the difference between God really moving and people just getting whipped up into a frenzy? He was very clear. There's always repentance. The gospel is preached. People come to know Christ and there's obedience to the word of God as a result of the revival. It's not just, oh, I get really whooped up for an hour or two and then I go out into the world and I go back to my life. No, it's there's actual change in the individuals, in the churches, in the people. Conversions, repentance, obedience to God's word. So I want to encourage you guys. Real simple devotion tonight. I know we're going to end early, which is fine. I just came across this article and I was blown away by this. I couldn't believe that these individuals would commit to something like this. And then I was kind of convicted because I realized I don't pray this way. I don't pray really believing God can do that. Five years later, what God was doing in that community, and I didn't even get into all of it. You can read the article for yourself, but there are individuals in church history, the Wesleyan brothers, uh, William Carey, obviously, Jonathan Edwards even, directly impacted by what was going on in these movements. And think about the connection there to what they were able to do. And study church history. You will always connect Revival moves of God and prayer. It's never one or the other. There's always a connection there. Even the Great Awakening, the Second Great Awakening, the Welsh Revival, all began with prayer meetings. One example, and I forget if it was the Great Awakening or I think it was, one example was just a businessman that said, you know what, I want to believe God for greater things. I believe God can change our community. And he, on his lunch break, I think it was him and Maybe one other person began praying. And for months, it was just two of them just praying consistently every day at lunch. And then after a couple months, it grew to a small group. And then a little more showed up and a little more showed up and a little more showed up. And next thing you know, revival breaks out. Because we as Christians are called to seek God. And again, it's not that we convince God, talk God into anything. God is going to do what God's going to do. But we get to be a part of it. And when we pray and we seek him, we're opening ourselves up to God using us for his glory. And so I want to encourage you guys about that tonight. Like I said, it blew me away in a positive way what God did to this group. So any comments or thoughts as we get ready to close as uh, what we've talked about tonight? Any comments, thoughts, response of any kind before we close in prayer? I like that. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. And I love that, that you said it that way. It's a privilege to be a part of God's will unfolding and God's going to do what God's going to do. And the amazing thing is that when we say no to him, and we say, no, I'm not going to pray. I'm not going to be involved in that because of whatever reason. It's not like God's like, oh, 
I can't do that now, you know? You know, he's going to do it. He's going to still work. But, and I've seen this and I've shared it before and, and witnessing to someone. I told, the, I told God, no, I was not going to witness to a certain person because I did not believe they would listen. I didn't think it was worth my time. I'm being real honest in college. I was like, nope, that guy's not going to listen to me. You're crazy. Within five minutes, another guy playing basketball with me stopped what he was doing, jogs across the street, sits next to this guy on the bench and starts witnessing to him. He comes back. What in the world was that about? Why did you? And he's like, I don't know. I just felt impressed of God to go over there. When did you feel that? Like literally two minutes before I ran over there. It was like God impressed it on my heart. And I said, no. And God went, you just missed that opportunity, but I'm still going to reach this person with my gospel. So this guy's name is David. David, I'm going to impress it on your heart. Will you respond? Now, God knows he knew I wouldn't. David would. We're not getting into that. The point is, from my perception, I missed an opportunity. Now, granted, the next night, David and I both went and picked this guy up for church. We went to the same church. Again, God allowed me the privilege to be somewhat involved in this experience. We both got to share faith with him, and he ended up coming to know Christ the three of us in the vehicle the next night. But that was such a clear moment to me where God was like, do you get it now that I'm going to do what I'm going to do? And it's up to you whether you want to be a part of it or not. Because you're not going to stop me by saying no. I'm going to do it. And man, I would rather be a part of what God is doing than miss out on that to see what God is doing practically. And so, yeah, absolutely. It's a privilege that he allows us to be a part of that. Any other thoughts or comments to kind of what we've gone over tonight before we pray? All right, well, we'll go ahead and close in prayer. <clears throat> and then you guys are dismissed. Again, we're ending a little early, so feel free to fellowship and talk a little bit. But uh, let's pray and be dismissed. Father, we thank you, Lord, so much for tonight. And we thank you, Lord, for just the opportunity you've given to us as followers of Christ to seek you in prayer. Lord, I truly believe that one of the greatest ways that we grow in our walk is to pray. It's not about making a wish list and treating you like a vending machine. And we just put in our request and you give us our responses and what we want. It's a, it's the greatest demonstration I really believe of faith because prayer is asking what we can't do, what we can't accomplish, what we can't understand of you. The one that knows all things, does all things that are for your glory. And then sitting back and trusting you that whatever happens is for your glory. And, and so, Lord, sometimes we've prayed prayer requests and we've prayed for things and it didn't go according to what we thought. You said no or you said not right now. But yet, Lord, we can sit back and still be strengthened in our faith to go, you know more than I do. Sometimes we've prayed and you've answered with an instant yes. Sometimes it's taken a long time to see that prayer come to be. But, Lord, I pray that you would help us to grow in this area where we would trust you because I believe as we pray and seek you by the working of your spirit, that you will conform our hearts and our minds to your will. And that what you say in your word is true, that when we pray according to your will, anything we ask in Jesus' name, it'll be done. But the key is according to your will. And so I pray that as we mature in the spirit, as we grow in Christ, that we'll be conformed to the image of Christ. We'll better understand your will. Time in your word will help us to understand that. And yet at the end of the day, Lord, we still can just trust you and say, Lord, your will be done. Father, thank you for this group of believers that you've brought to our attention tonight. These individuals that na their names we'll never know. 
But Lord, the impact they made literally felt for generations, even to this day. We have no idea how entire communities, regions were changed by the gospel being brought to them. Because individuals, 50 or so in a community said, let's believe God for something more. Committed to it, was diligent in it, faithful. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to pray without ceasing, to pray fervently, believing you can do all things. There is no such thing as impossible with you. And so let's pray that way. Father, again, thank you for this evening. May you be glorified in all that's been said and done. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.